Aren't you thankful for your uh, children's ministry workers? Yes. Always on. Beautiful. Well, good morning, Cornerstone. You're here. Well done. You've got the, the new batteries. You've got the good dog sled team. And, Cor- and Coldwater, we're glad that you're tuning in as well. It's nice to be together under God's word. Our pastor will be back next week. I'm looking forward to that. Um, Yes. You come to speak and the room kind of gets empty. It's a little (laughs) disconcerting. It'll be good to have you back. And as you know, uh, you've been praying for him as he updates his book, Mile One. Uh, It's been, what, 14 years since he wrote the first edition, and so, of course, that new edition is important for our day. He'll be starting a new sermon series next week on biblical anthropology. What does God say about who we are as human beings? That's so important because there's so much confusion and chaos out there, isn't there? I'm looking forward to him being back here. And, and opening God's word to us. Today we get to look at the second psalm, a, a second psalm of ascent, songs for the journey, we've called them. These were songs that the Old Testament people of God sang as they hiked up to Jerusalem to worship Almighty God. Now, you can't just saunter in to do that. You have to be well-prepared And um, though the melody lines are lost to us, the lyrics aren't. They're timeless. God gave them to us so that we too can tune our hearts as we walk with him and worship our way heavenward. The last few weeks, an old song burrowed back into my memory that I haven't thought of for years. Do you know this one? Just a closer walk with thee. Granted, Jesus is my plea, daily walking close to Thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. Yeah, the tune's already going in your mind, isn't it? The origins of that that song are unknown. It probably sprang from the harsh soil of deep south slavery. Because listen to the next, uh, one of the verses, through this world of toils and snares, If I falter, Lord, who cares? Who with me my burden bears? None but thee, dear Lord, none but thee. God, this will never be home. I need to be close to you. I need your nearness. Is that your longing this year? It's mine. Would you like a closer, more uncluttered nearness to God? That's what I want to But what is it that gets in the way of that? A a million and one things, I suppose. Do you ever get distracted sometimes like I do? Do you ever get in the way or want your way instead of God's way in your walk with God? Or on the other side of the relationship, does God ever baffle you? Does he ever disappoint or maybe even upset you? Every time we open our Bibles to come near to God, to feel closer to God and understand Him a little bit better in our walk with Him, we're actually opening a window on something bigger than we can take in. We're peering into the unfathomable. 
the incomprehensible. We're looking into infinity. It's like hoping for a glimpse of God. Uh, sorry, it's like hoping for a glimpse of the, of the Grand Canyon. And so to do that, we step out onto the viewing deck, realize it's transparent, and find a vast abyss underneath. It's dizzying. I prefer a cozy chair and a hot coffee during my quiet time, don't you? But how do you get close to a God who discomforts us? How do you get close to a God who confounds us and maybe even terrifies us? How do you walk in intimacy with God, with a God whose greatness is unsearchable? Psalm 145.3, whose wisdom and whose ways are beyond finding out, Romans 11. Well, that's what Psalm 131 will help us explore this morning. You're there, Psalm 131. Let's read it again. Hear now the word of the Lord. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, reading this psalm is like driving through Edgar, Ontario. Where is that? That's the point. You blink, and you've missed it. it. It's one of the shortest psalms to read, Charles Spurgeon said, but one of the longest to learn. To experience a closer walk with God, this little song says... We need to learn childlike submission to God. Childlike submission to God. We need a maturing dependence like that of a growing child. Now, before we dig into this little song, it might be helpful for the benefit of anybody that's new to God's Word, new to the Bible, to sketch out how the Bible compares a person's spiritual life or walk with God to the stages of spiritual, of physical growth that we all go through, from birth, through infancy, all the way to maturity. Our physical life begins with the miracles of conception and birth. Our birth happened to us. We didn't do it. It happened to us. We were there, but nothing about the process was really up to us, was it? In the same way, in a similar way that our spiritual life, our physical life begins that way, our spiritual life begins with a miracle that only God can do in the heart and soul of a person. It too happens to us. Our spiritual life isn't handed down to us by Christian parents like our DNA is. It's not something that we choose deliberately by our own independent volition, it's a miracle. It's a miracle called the new birth where God's spirit brings us from dead in sin. That's, what our, that's the, DNA, the spiritual DNA that our parents handed to us. 
God's Spirit brings us from being dead in sin, unresponsive to God, to being alive in Christ, responsive to God. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, unless one is born again, born anew, born from above, he cannot, cannot, See the kingdom of God. That's where spiritual infancy begins. From God's point of view, we can't just, we can't enjoy any kind of a walk with God, let alone a closer walk with God, unless God brings us to life spiritually, to his eternal life. Prior to that, prior to that work of God in us, the Bible describes everyone's condition as dead, Ephesians 2 as alienated from God's life, Ephesians 4, as hostile, Ephesians, Colossians 1, and, and as enemies of God. From a human standpoint, though, from our earthly point of view, this new birth happens when the good news about Jesus lands like a seed on our hearts and germinates there. The good news of Jesus, that Jesus came as God's good gift for us to live a holy life, to die for our sins, and then to be raised back to life, to this indestructible life, so that if, if we humble ourselves and receive, trust, believe, take what God says as true, turning from our sin and taking him at his word, that seed takes in our hearts and we begin to grow. That's where God springs us to life. You have been born again, 1 Peter 1 says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding work of God, word of God. What word? God's word about Jesus, specifically. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says again, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Only if, only when, we humbly receive Jesus like a child would, only there does our spiritual infancy begin. Only there does any kind of walk with God start. And so then, as baby believers, we begin to grow by ingesting the milk. That's a great reminder, isn't it? I know. Baby believers then begin to grow by ingesting the milk of God's Word. What is that? Feeding on the baby basics that God teaches us in the Bible as we first begin to, to know Him. Growing up is the goal. Maturity is important. We're, not, we're meant to grow out of infancy and onto solid food and onto further maturity, onto full maturity. Now, there's a whole lot more to that growing up process spiritually, but essentially, it's a process where Christ-like character is formed in us as we walk with God by His Spirit, in His Word. Hebrews chapter 5 
chides professing believers who've gotten stunted in that growth process. Though by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the, you say it, for the mature. Grow up. Get off the bottle. Get way past pablum. Spiritual infancy isn't the place to park. So cozy, coffee cup Christianity makes us think that a closer walk with God is all cuddles and comfort. It's not. God means to grow us up. And that, Psalm 131 says, means learning childlike submission to God. It means getting past the infantile selfishness and onto childlike confidence in God. Well, how do you do that? First, curb your bent towards self. Step down from your self-consumed way that comes so naturally. Look at verse 1. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Every newborn enters the world unaware of much. Not, a, not a, aware of a whole lot, right? And yet, we all begin life like tiny tyrants, don't we? The minute we start breathing, our needs impose themselves on everybody near us. The world revolves around us. Everything has to go our way on our timetable. Spiritually, it's similar. We begin bent towards self, full of self. We naturally look at everything around us, including God, through the lens of me. And so the songwriter here, David, the title says, recognizes this, and then he prays, God, I renounce all that. I want to unplug from all that. I want the off-ramp from that. I don't want my heart lifted up in pride. I don't want my eyes raised high in haughtiness, looking down from the grand heights of me, surveying the realm, my whole realm, envying and making sure that others get cut down to size. I don't want that kind of arrogant disdain in me. I don't want to be consumed with things too great, chasing grandiose ambitions fueled on ego, pulling all of the limelight, all of the spotlight on me. In fact, more than all of that, Lord, I don't want me to be the measure of things too marvelous, meaning wondrous things, supernatural, God-sized things. Do you see the progression in that little verse? It goes from pride to arrogance to selfish ambition to idolatry. God, I want to be unplugged from all of that. It's not easy to recognize that pride, selfish ambition, arrogance is a dread danger to us when all around us they're upheld as virtues. 
What the Bible says is a basic sin, the sin of taking things into your own hands, of grabbing what's there while you can get it for yourself, of being your own designer, of being your own God, all of that is championed out there as the way to go. And yet James chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 warns us that wisdom, that way of living isn't from above. It's earthly. It's natural. It's demonic. Really? Demonic? Yes. It was the very same self-ascension that got Lucifer turfed out of heaven. I will be like the Most High. But self, let's admit it, can seep in where we hardly even notice, can be so imperceptible in our walk with God, in the way that we think about God. Have you ever thought this or heard someone say this? I know what the Bible says, but I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. Fill in that blank. When you and I squeeze God into the shape of what I like, into the shape of our preferences, or confine Him to the measure of our imaginations, we step out onto dread danger. Why? A God begotten in the shadows of a fallen heart, A.W. Tozer writes, will quite naturally be no true likeness of the true God. Thou thoughtest, said the Lord to the wicked man in this psalm, he's quoting Psalm 50 verse 21, that I was altogether such an one as thyself. Surely this must be a serious affront. Yes, libel. Yes, treachery. Yes, rebellion to the Most High God before whom cherubim and seraphim continually thunder, holy, holy, Holy is Lord God Almighty. Why would I want to make minuscule me the measure of God Almighty? Why? The true and living God is incomprehensibly great. To think that my finite brain can figure him out or work my way up to him, to think that my head can wrap him into a neat and tidy and likable package, God and his ways are unfathomable, unsearchable. The early church father Anselm described him as that than which nothing greater can be conceived. That than which nothing greater can be conceived. Stretch your gray cells to their earnest limits and God still exceeds that to an infinite degree. Doesn't mean that God is unknowable. We heard that from our pastor on Christmas Eve Sunday, didn't we? John chapter 1, he sent, he has come close to us in the person of Jesus. He has made himself knowable. But what do you do with those God-sized marvels that God himself, God's flawless word, tells us are true? What do you do with, like, God is one, and yet he reveals himself to us as Father, Son, 
and spirit, three persons. What do you do with the marvel that God is holy, unapproachably pure? You stare at an, an elder, a, a welder's ark, that bright light that comes from the welder's ark, and we fry our eyes. You get too close to the holy, holy, holiness of God, and we disintegrate. And yet God says, come, come close. He's transcendent. He's in a category all his own. He needs nothing. He doesn't even need us. And yet he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 8. His understanding is inscrutable. These are, there are things about God that only God himself will ever know for all eternity. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, says Deuteronomy 29. So what do you do with those secret things? that confound you, those God-sized things that make you marvel. A friend once asked me a question that stunned me at first. He said, Steve, have you ever worshipped God for making hell? It's a startling question. What does hell tell us about the infinite value of God's holiness? Or here's another question. Can you worship God for how he has put you together by design, by his design? Can you worship him for your humanity that he has given to you, your sexuality? You know, pride, being full of me, will turn that into doubt or distrust. Measure God by me and I'll be tempted to deconstruct my faith and just walk away. I prefer God my way, on my terms, in my box. But childlike submission will choose to take God on God's terms. On God's terms. So child of God, give way to what confounds you about God and marvel and marvel, curbing your bent towards self will help you turn your doubt into adoration. Into adoration. Anselm wrote this, I don't try, Lord, to attain your lofty heights because my own understanding is in no way equal to it. But I do desire to understand your truth a little. That truth that my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand so that I may believe, but I believe so that I may understand. Yes. There's a type of knowledge that's beyond our reach as creatures. We, we can know much, but there's far more that we'll never know. If, we, if you and I attach our hope of walking close to God to our ability to comprehend God, we will despair. We won't just doubt. But like David does here, if we curb self and remain content to live as mere, creature, mere creatures before unfathomable creator, that's a heart posture that God rewards. 
He himself says that in Isaiah 57. For thus says the Holy One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him, with her, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you want a closer walk with God? Curb your bent towards self. And then commit to contentment in God. Seek to be satisfied, satiated in God. Look at verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Other Bible versions begin this verse with the word, surely. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. The Hebrew words behind all this literally say something like, if not, if I haven't calmed and quieted my soul, it's, it's shorthand for taking an oath or making a solemn promise. God, if I don't do this, deal with me. Hold me to this. I am committed to ditching my self-fueled, restless distrust for a soul that's quiet and contented in you. Still like a lake unruffled even by a breeze. Calm, like a child who's grown past infancy because of the weaning process. Weaning, I love how Charles Spurgeon writes this, weaning was one of the first real troubles that we met after we came into this world, and it was at the time a very terrible, very terrible one to our little hearts. We got over it somehow or other. We don't remember now what a trial it was to us, but we may take it as a type of all troubles. For if we have faith in Him, who was our God from our mother's breasts, as we got over the weaning and don't even recollect it, so we shall get over all the troubles that are to come and shall scarcely remember them for the joys that will follow. Out of love, our mothers inflicted us with discomfort. Imagine. They deliberately chose us, chose to vex us, to perplex us, to distress us by withholding them, themselves from us so we would grow up. And that's God's pattern with us. What's the difference between a nursing infant and a child that's been weaned? When a nursing infant gets hungry, it begins to bellow. It gets ticked. And if mom doesn't answer the call to duty, it gets frantic. But a weaned child has moved beyond all that restless distrust. It's grown out of that frantic groping of the infant days and, and no longer doubts that mom will provide the nourishment that he needs even when he's hungry. 
And his confidence has grown through the discomfort of the weaning process to trust that mom will not withhold what is good from him. A weaned child no longer needs the milk he used to depend on and can rest on mom's chest, not for what he can get from her, but simply because he delights in her. So of those two pictures, the nursing infant and the weaned child, which one do you look more like in your walk with God? Which one looks more like you? Are you infantile still or a growing dependent? Are you stormy or are you still? It's a blessed mark of maturity when we can forego the joys which once seemed so essential and can find solace, our solace in him who denied them to us. That was Spurgeon again. Do you walk with God merely for what you can get from God? You can tell when God withholds something good from you. When he does that, when he withholds something you think is good, something you think you need, you believe you deserve, do you get unsettled? God, where are you? I thought you were... Or you could decide, no, I know you, God. I know your goodness. I know your greatness. I can rest. I can commit myself to contentment in you. That was the gauntlet that Satan threw down. Remember? He threw it down at God. Job, remember that? Job, Satan says to God, he only walks blamelessly before you, God, because you give him kids and you give him health and you give him all this stuff. That's smooth sailing. Of course, he's going to treasure you and trust you. But take it all away and he, he will prove that you aren't worth treasuring or trusting. He will walk from you, God. That was an excruciating ordeal for Joel. It's for Job, wasn't it? Slog your way through the long book of Job and you will see that committing yourself to contentment in God doesn't mean that we can't express discomfort to Him. It doesn't mean that we can't ask God questions or pound on God's chest. But Job never hit the guardrails. What are those? He never charged God with wrongdoing. And through the whole ordeal, God gave Job a vastly expanded view of God. And so James chapter 5 verse 11 tells us about that ordeal. God's purpose in putting Job through all of that was to help us see, to open our eyes to see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful to give us a more expansive view on God's mercy and His compassion. We can trust and treasure God, not merely when He comforts us, but even when He tries us. But learning this isn't easy, is it? 
None of us can do this on our own steam. <laughs> it's a lesson that we often have to learn and then learn again and then relearn again. And we go, I thought I learned that last time. We can't help ourselves to do this properly. I'm encouraged by the desperate dad that came to Jesus in Mark chapter 9. Remember him? His boy had been afflicted since childhood by a demon that pitched him into frequent self-harm. Remember that? And the desperate dad, I imagine he's so exhausted, comes to Jesus and says, if you can do, any, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus picks up on the dad's own words and he goes, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. And do you remember the dad's reflex? Oh, I, I'm so grateful for this example. I believe. Help. Help. My unbelief. I need your help to believe, God. And so childlike submission to God is a heart posture that, where we will always need God's help to learn and to relearn and to learn again. Every life circumstance and every new stage of life offers opportunities to relearn what we thought we'd already learned in a previous stage. And that's why doing this is not a solo effort. And we need to do like David indicates in verse 3. Invite others into this rest. Invite others into this contentment, this confidence. Come with me, verse 3 says. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. People of God, Cornerstone, let's us do this together. Let's us do this now, today, from this time into this year and till our King comes. Let's do it the way Psalm 37 says. Let's delight ourselves in the Lord and he'll give us the desires of his heart. That doesn't mean that he will cave to what we want. It means that he will shape our hearts and satiate us for what we truly need in him. When God weans us, his purpose is to produce endurance in us, which produces character in us, which produces hope in us. And hoping in the Lord will not, will not disappoint you. We're all growing up spiritually, aren't we? We're all in some stage along the way. Eugene, Eugene Peterson says it this way, the early stages of Christian belief are not infrequently marked with miraculous signs and exhilarations of spirit. Did you experience it that way? Big things happen when we're baby Christians. God's awesome. But as dis discipleship continues, the sensible comforts gradually disappear. For God does not want us neurotically dependent on him, but willingly trustful in him. And so he weans us. The period of infancy will not be sentimentally extended beyond what is necessary. God will cuddle you, but he will not coddle you. So the next time you find yourself unsettled or confounded by God, God, where are you? I don't understand. 
I don't feel like I used to when I was young, as a young Christian. Am I even, am I even saved? Is it me or is it you, God? Run to this psalm. Come back to it and remember that the spiritual weaning process is not one and done. It wasn't for David. You could, go, you could trace a line all the way through David's life and find him being weaned again and again. Like when David was a youth and his dad sent him on an errand to the battlefield, he was baffled that his own brothers weren't willing to take Goliath on. You remember that? And his big brother Eliab lashes out, you pipsqueak. You are so full of yourself. Was he? Did that unsettle him? Or later on, when David was running for his life because the crown that God had promised him was still on the head of the man that was wanting him dead. And when David had a chance to take Saul out and claim what was rightfully his, did he? Much later, when his own son Absalom was chasing him the same way that Saul was, that Saul did, and he was on the run again, how is it that David could pick up his pen in Psalm 3, the psalm he wrote during that time, and say in verse 5, I lay down and slept. I lay down and slept. How could he do that? It's because from his earliest days, when he was relegated to the back 40, caring for nothing but sheep, David began to practice what he's picturing for us here. I have calmed and quieted my soul. How do I know that? Well, he also wrote your favorite, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even his rod and his staff comfort me. Getting to know God will humble you. It will expand you, and it will imminently, eminently comfort you. Those, those were Charles Spurgeon's words when he was barely 20 years old. Listen to him. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing, he writes, which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak to peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Let's pray. Nearer, my God, to thee, nearer to thee, E'en though it be a cross that raiseth me, still all my song shall be nearer, my God, to thee, nearer.
to thee. Lord, that's what we want. We want more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.